The eventual conviction of Malka Leifer, the former principal of an ultra-Orthodox Jewish school in Melbourne, only happened because of a long, hard fight by the students that she abused. And this was despite a very strong cultural push towards silence in the insular community within which they were raised, and more generally in the broader Australian community too. Darcy Ehrlich has written a book about how she found the courage to speak out and how she and her two sisters built a formidable community coalition to see justice finally served. It's called In Bad Faith, Inside Australia's Ultra-Orthodox Sect and the Brutal Betrayal It Tried to Hide. Darcy, welcome to Life Matters. Thank you so much for having me on here this morning. The circumstances which led to Malka Leifer's sentencing might be familiar to listeners. They were all across the news. They were in the ABC's Australian story. When she was finally sentenced late last year, what was that moment like for you and your sisters? It was after nine weeks of sitting in that courtroom and so much truth had not been able to come through that court and just wondering if the jury were going to be able to find the truth in all of that. It was absolutely a terrifying moment and those first few not guilties felt absolutely devastating. And then it was guilty and it was, they actually saw, they saw that she was an abuser, that she's she's been convicted. It was such a confusing, but such a validating moment. Well, in the nine weeks in court, but then over 20 years between when the abuse first started and the incredible processes you'd gone through to get to that point, that's a big chunk of your life, isn't it? It was. And I think I wrote in my book the morning after, you know, I'm finally walking away from something I had walked towards my entire adult life. And since Malka Leifer abused me, I had been walking towards that justice and having to fight extremely hard for that justice. Tell us a little bit about the timeline. You first brought these crimes to the attention of police in 2011, but at that time the case couldn't go through the courts. Why was that? So Malka Leifer had fled Australia with the help of the school board in 2008, only I think it was 24 hours after the the school had put the allegations to her. And for all intents and purposes, justice was never going to happen. When my sister first went to the police in 2011, they said, we can ask for an extradition from Israel. Um, we had no idea how many years that would take or the lengths that Leifa and her and her support would go to try and evade justice. So Leifa was stood down by the school board, but then bought tickets for her and her family to fly to Israel. You grew up in this very insular, very religious and quite small community. Um, Dusty, can you tell us how the very particular conditions and rules of the Adas community shaped your life, especially when it comes to women speaking up? They're very, very rigid gender roles and especially as women, we were taught to never, ever draw attention to us or draw attention to our bodies. We're supposed to be completely covered up at all times. We weren't supposed to know about our bodies. We didn't talk about periods or bras or anything. Um, and, and, and for as everything that we, that everything that was some. We we didn't we just we just didn't talk about these things. It wasn't something that you know we even considered talking about. Well, then women in general weren't cons- weren't encouraged to be loud or vocal or opinionated either, were they? No, not at all. Which was why when Malka Leifer came to the community and she was this powerful, charismatic woman, everyone looked up to her. Suddenly, we had a woman that you know almost had the position of a man in the community people looked up to her people revered her people went to her for advice i'd never seen anything like her 
There's also, I understand, quite a strong prohibition on talking about problems within the community to outsiders. Can you give us a sense of why that's such a strong feeling in the community, that that is a dangerous thing to do? Well, we had no contact with out, with with people outside of the community, not even the wider Jewish community. It was this idea that if we in some way interacted with people outside of the community, they would influence us and tear us away from the best and the most right way to live. We're speaking with Dusty Ehrlich, who grew up in the Adas community and there encountered Malka Leifer, who you'll be familiar with the crimes of by this stage. The book's called In Bad Faith, Inside Australia's Ultra-Orthodox Sect and the Brutal Betrayal That It Tried to Hide. And, I mean, you you, uh, have written about how the very well-publicised abuse from your principal wasn't the first time that adults had betrayed your trust. Tell us what it was like growing up. How much of a sense of safety did you have in the home? I didn't have any safety growing up at home. I lived in a constant state of hypervigilance and fear and there was no safety and being told I was worthless and deserved the abuse and my parents were both abusive and essentially I was completely ripe for Malkalifa's abuse. So tell me a bit more about that. The the You've explained how she was such a revered figure and I think very well liked when she first started teaching at the school too. Um, why do you say that you in particular were ripe for her attentions? Well, I felt that I had no worth. I was told that, you know, at times I wasn't even called my name at home because I didn't deserve to have a name. And suddenly this woman you know, is telling me she loves me and she loves me like a mother. I felt so special. I felt suddenly, you know, I was craving that attention, that love, that I, w- I was desperate to be noticed as a, as a child is, um, which, of course, made me extremely vulnerable to her. And was there anyone else that you could have gone to for help that, that could have uh, overseen her? She was the principal of the school and she was the authority there was some point that I tried to talk to another teacher to ask her, you know, if what's happening is wrong, but I had no words to explain. I didn't even know how to talk about my body. I didn't know the words uh, to use to even ask her if what was happening was wrong. That really came out in the court transcripts, I understand, that, you know, there's a lot of questioning about why people didn't say things at particular times. How, what was it like going through that court process for you and, and having to explain how you as a child were unable to speak about it? It was an incredibly daunting process. I spent five days on the stand being cross-examined about absolutely everything in my life. It had a, it had a significant impact on me. And it, it was just, it, it, the system is not made for survivors. It's just not. Well, then when you talk about not having the words at the time to describe what was happening to you, how did that affect things, how the court case played out? Because I think... Sometimes there seems to be an assumption that everyone who comes into court as a witness has the same level of uh, education and background and and assumptions about how to speak about certain things. What did you find? I found that the court was having a difficult time really understanding the community that we grew up within and the insularity and the exclusivity. Um, Even to the point, I think, in the judgment, the judge went and said it would be very unlikely that Malka Life will re-offend in the future. I felt, I mean, given how insular the community is and the disbelief that abuse even happens, the chances of her re-offending were actually extremely high. 
Sarah Krasnerstein wrote a really interesting essay in The Monthly about the case and it really illuminated for me that sense of threat that um, certain parts of the Jewish community have felt always and perhaps particularly more now. Uh, was that a, an, a, an aspect, do you think, that played into people's unwillingness to address the issue? The threats of what, sorry? Well, just the threat of going to outsiders and, and making it clear that there was such a big uh, problem happening in the community. Oh, we always dealt with the issues in the community within the community. There's also this sense of not going to secular authorities um, that's against Jewish law to, you know, to deal with these types of things in, in a secular environment. So when you and your sisters started uh, the campaign to extradite Malkalife, how was that? How difficult was that to build this coalition and draw various voices into that? Initially, it was quite difficult. Um, you know, Malkalife had was kind of in Israel. She had been arrested by that time. She was, uh, the case had, had stalled and she was uh, basically told that she can go home and just has to appear in front of a, a psychiatric panel twice twice a year to see if she, you know, if the case will reconvene. So that was a titled so, house arrest, wasn't it? Exactly. And initially people didn't really want to have anything to do with this case. Um, they didn't think that there was any point in, in raising the issue. And I remember sitting down with Ted Bailu um, one, one evening and he said to me, you know, whoever... At some point, this cause will become so big that whoever doesn't, whoever doesn't support this cause, you know, that wouldn't look good for them. And at the time, I didn't believe him. Um, I didn't think. But with his support and with his, there was a huge groundswell of support from people, um, both federal and state government came on board to support us and amplify our cause. It was, yeah. It was what? How did it, it was, feel? It was absolutely empowering and incredible. And what kind of pushback were you getting or reactions were you getting from, say, family or community at this point, Dussie? So my family, my siblings were all incredibly supportive and we would have, you know, we would have, my sisters and I would have not got to the space that we were without their support. There, there were um, huge campaigns against us to support LIFA, particularly in Israel, um, and constantly we were getting phone calls and told that, you know, it's you're doing this for fame or for money and I was questioning you know what fame what money <laughs> who would want this fame, fame. exactly yeah. um so th there was a significant pushback but uh, as the campaign kind of went forward and we had more and more people um amplifying our cause we had we had people um that were willing to support us and you know, I remember there was at one point uh, there was supposed to be a huge campaign against the justice minister in Israel to show that she was biased against Australia. And people found out about that and that was leaked before it went to the press. And so obviously that failed. And that was the, the support that we had. Really, really interesting. We're speaking with Dusty Ehrlich, who has uh, waged a very, very long battle and now written a book about that and the impacts on her and her sisters of the uh, huge campaign to bring Malkalifa to justice. The book's called In Bad Faith, Inside Australia's Ultra-Orthodox Sect and the Brutal Betrayal It Tried to Hide. Let's backtrack a little bit, Dusty. Um, you were quite young in, uh, I guess, statistical terms, in relative terms to the rest of the Australian population when you got married and it was an arranged marriage, which was the, the practice in your community at the time. How did that change things for you? Did that uh, help you in any material way to be able to kind of step away from what was happening? 
I remember waking up the morning after I got married and feeling this utter sense of freedom that I was away from my parents' control. And at the time, I didn't know that I would never be abused by Lifer again because we left to Israel probably about a, a month later. Um, and by the time I came back to Australia two years later, she had fled. So it was, it, it was very strange, you know, having, I had been taught to never, ever speak to men or have, or be noticed by men. And suddenly I'm married to this man and I'm supposed to have this relationship with him. It was a constant learning process of how to live this new life, but one that I knew was preordained for me. Was it, uh, what was it like to having had these experiences of abuse, but then also knowing in some way that you would be expected to have a physically intimate relationship with this man? What was that like for you? At that point, I hadn't considered what had happened with life or abuse. I just didn't think about it at all. I knew somehow that it was wrong, but I had no way of thinking about it. And my understanding of my relationship with my husband was to have children. That was my that was my whole goal as, you know, that what I was taught from a very young a very young child, that my goal as a woman was to grow up and bear children and bear the next generation of religious children. And that was the only thing that I thought about. And so when you moved to Israel with your husband at the time, uh, did being in a different country help you get any perspective or access any useful information? Well, it was the first time that I had access to the internet and having no knowledge or understanding um, how to use the internet, I obviously ended up in some very... Uh, risky or um, I was just trying to understand what was happening inside my mind and why I was having these thoughts and why what, what was I was trying to understand what had happened to me. So you were searching with some risky terms perhaps? Oh absolutely not understanding why I was ending up in the place that I was which eventually then led me to a therapist and I was, I'm this religious woman I'm not supposed to be using the internet and here I am ending up on these very risky sites why am I such a terrible person that this is happening And so at the time you were trying to get pregnant too and and I understand that you were trying to be a better person for this unborn child as well I believe my online explorations was the reason I was facing infertility, that God was punishing me um, in some way. That must have been a bit hard to live with at the time. It was. I wasn't in a very good mental health space at all. So when you started seeing the religious counsellor uh, and you disclosed the abuse eventually, what was that moment like for you? Uh, sometimes people envision it as a kind of freeing moment, but how did you experience it? It almost came out by accident. You know, I'm talking about these things that I'm looking at online and um, it kind of led to a question of this doesn't make sense for a religious woman. You know, does something happen to you? Um, And I said, yes, something had, because by then I had some understanding. And she said to me, oh, you know, how did a man have access to you? Because that was, of course, the first question. And I just remember saying it wasn't a man and leaving that therapy session and and running away and thinking I'm never going to go back there. And then she called and called and called me. (laughs) I eventually did go back and told her that it was Malkalifa. And she had this look of disbelief because she knew Malkalifa and she knew the woman that she was and the respect that she had in the community. And she had this look of disbelief. And I found myself rushing to tell her, I think my sister also has been abused and you should call her. Um, And, and, there was so much silence in the community that even once 
I said that, it didn't feel at all that anything had changed. I mean, it's triggered this whole chain of events and she left. But it was like it had never happened in my marriage in the community. No one ever talked about it again. And I didn't talk about it until I left the community. But it's really interesting, wasn't it? Because when you came back to Australia, you came back to this media frenzy. What was that like for you to have uh, an issue that had had been surrounded by so much silence suddenly so public? So the the media frenzy didn't really start until we started campaigning um, and just the, the idea of this thing that we never spoke about suddenly being spoken about on such a large scale. I mean, there were so many moments I just kind of took a step back and looked at it and, and just said to my younger self, you know, this look where we've got to. Well, then I understand you were being described as a victim at that point. What was that like for you? It took me a long time to kind of work through that and and work through the idea of what a victim was and to not blame myself because there was a lot of time that I felt um, there was a lot of shame and self-blame um, and see myself as a survivor. We're speaking with Dusty Ehrlich and the language around the victims, survivors, victim survivors of uh, child sexual abuse is still a, a fairly contested space, I guess, and, and we need to listen to people who've been through this uh, to assess what they would like to be called. Her book's called In Bad Faith, Inside Australia's Ultra-Orthodox Sect and the Brutal Betrayal It Tried to Hide. Dusty, you did get pregnant. Excellent. Congratulations. But um, unsurprisingly, that that coincided with uh, some really difficult times in your mental health and you were admitted to a private psychiatric clinic. But it sounds like that was a real turning point for you. What was happening for you then? I mean, there's nothing like uh, having a child that <laughs> that opens up all those unresolved issues that you've tried to ignore all your life. But going into that psychiatric clinic with my daughter and suddenly being exposed to this other world, other mums, um, it was my first time having a conversation with someone outside of my community. It was incredibly eye-opening. And I had all these beliefs that people outside of my community, you know, were drug addicts, alcoholics, or, you know, they, they didn't have this uh these rules that governed every minute of their lives, so therefore their lives were empty. And suddenly I'm sitting with these mums who are having the same struggles I'm having and just wanting to be the best mother they can be for their children. Um, and that whole mentality, I'm starting to question if if that's wrong, what else has been, what else is wrong? So, I mean, you've been through some major revolutionary turning points in your life, haven't you? It's a pretty huge set of steps to have gone through. When the case against Lifer is dropped and extradition starts to look really unlikely during that point when she claims that she's mentally unfit to stand trial, what do you think made it possible for you and your sisters to maintain that fight and to to continue trying to build that momentum? I think there were many moments that my sisters and I wanted to give up, uh, but we were doing it together and we also knew that Malkalifa had gone on and potentially abused other people. And if we could do something to stop that, we knew that we needed to. We knew that we had to do everything that we could. But also we were contacted by so many other survivors that saw what we were doing and and gained some inspiration or, or just felt even less alone watching, you know, people respond to that and people um, come together to fight for this justice. It was an incredible journey. Chantelle Contos and Grace Tame have talked about that too, just being contacted by floods of people saying, this is my story as well. Did that um, give you a, a sense of responsibility as well, a, a bit of a burden in that sense? 
It did, but it was a burden that my sisters and I together were able to carry. Um, and that carried us through those moments when it felt like it was just too much. Dussie, how much hope did you have that she would eventually be extradited? That's a tough question because there were times we didn't have hope, especially when I think we got up to 74 court hearings in Israel and it just seemed like it would never end and that they were just, it were just going to be stuck in this legal inertia for, forever. Um, but it also felt like it, it just was getting bigger and bigger and, and at some point something had to happen. She had to come back. I noticed that the judge noted in his sentencing the, the effects of the abuse on you as a mother. How, how has this whole experience, I guess the, the whole process, the campaign, the eventual conviction, affected your parenting, do you feel? I think it's made me very intentional in my parenting. It's something that I've constantly had to work on. It's something that I, I had to really look at myself and understand what was I bringing from my childhood, what patterns and that intergenerational trauma and how and how can I work through that so that I'm not passing that on to my child. And other survivors have said, you know, this is a, a lifelong process. It's not like you suddenly wake up one day and go, everything's fixed, it's great. But you wrote this incredible sentence in your book, I am everything I need to be at this point. Tell us a bit more about that sentence. Well, for all of my life, I didn't think I was anyone. I mean, I believed that I was nothing. That's the way I saw myself as a child. Um, and then looking back at the choices I've made over my life and those incredible moments and realising that I am someone that is worthy of being here. I am everything I need to be. Darcy, how do you keep working on that positive message, you know, on the difficult days when things aren't going so right and you might be uh, overburdened by memories? How do, you, how do you make that next step? I'd like to think about it's not this kind of linear journey. It's always up and down, and I know it always will be up and down, but it's really about finding those moments of peace um, and getting through those difficult days with the support and the understanding that I have of how to do that now after doing that for so many years. Um, it, it's, it's a constant journey, but it's really about finding those little moments of peace in between. And do you and your sisters feel that, you know, this incredibly public campaign, this, this conviction, this sentencing, do you feel like it has had a broader impact and perhaps potentially helped prevent some future abuse? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And we've been told that by many, by many people who have contacted us that ha it has sparked conversations in place where those conversations wouldn't have happened. I mean, and that's, that's how we change. That's how we change as a society. Dussie, I want to read you a text that's come in. Please send congratulations and very best wishes to Dussie and her sisters, says Pat. I followed their story since it was first publicised. I'm so sorry for their very difficult experiences, but the three sisters are wonderful. Thank you. And lots of other people just thanking you for coming on and telling your story. So thank you from us too at Life Matters. Well, thank you for having me here and thank you for all the support. It's a pleasure. Dusty Ehrlich is the author of In Bad Faith, Inside Australia's Ultra-Orthodox Sect and the Brutal Betrayal It Tried to Hide, and it is out now. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.